If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. Green Dreamer is a community-powered, interdependent show made possible by listeners like you. And you can support our work by sharing your favorite episodes and making a donation at patreon.com slash greendreamer. I'm your host, Kamea Shane, and today we're speaking with Raj Patel and Dr. Rupa Maria. All the diseases of modern industrialized people that we see, all the main killers are diseases where inflammation is playing a major role. So it really is an interesting opportunity to look at communities who are living with their critical relationships to the web of life still intact. So they're not living under a colonial capitalist cosmology. Those communities do not have the rates of inflammatory disease that we suffer from. That was Dr. Rupa Maria, a physician, activist, and co-founder of the Do No Harm Coalition, who's teamed up with Raj Patel, the New York Times bestselling author of The Value of Nothing, to co-author their new book, Inflamed, which reveals the links between health and structural injustices and offers a new deep medicine that can heal our bodies and our world. And to preface this idea of deep medicine, I want to share these words from Rupa from a past interview. She says, while it's helpful that we're talking about the structural determinants of health as we're looking at the glaring disparities with the COVID crisis, we don't learn in medicine where these structures came from or how to dismantle them. And that is really what deep medicine is, end quote. So we begin here with Rupa and Raj, each sharing what compelled them to look deeper into our past and history to be able to better contextualize and understand our various ailments of today. For myself, it's just been a process my whole life of unlearning and coming into relationship with Indigenous people in the territories where I live and learning to see the connections between the social structures around people that are making them sick. Um, so a large part of that work for me has been in the work I do in music as a composer and traveling with my band, Rupa and the April Fishes, 
I was often most interested. We'd play big festivals. We'd play, you know, we tour more traditional music circuits, but the places I love to go were places where we could see the interaction between social structures and wellness or illness and looking at how patterns were recreated no matter where we were and that people who were suffering most intensely under the brunt of colonial structures were having similar health outcomes and actually not just similar health outcomes, but they were suffering from similar diseases. And so I would just say that it's been a lifelong process since I was a little girl. I'm speaking to you today from occupied and ceded Ohlone territory of Huchin. I was born in Ramatush Ohlone territory, which is what is now called the San Francisco Peninsula. I was born in Mountain View. And I was born to the Punjab. My parents are Punjabi immigrants. And they came to this country because of all the wealth that was extracted from our country. So in, in that way, we are refugees of colonial terror ourselves, but then have become settlers in this land. And so for me, that awakening really started when I was young and spending time in wilder places around here. So places where you didn't feel that imprint of the strip mall or the highways so in the redwood groves and the bay groves along the spine of the peninsula. And I started just asking questions and exploring these ideas. And I think it's vital to do this work of unlearning and re-examining who we are and where we are and how we got there and really applying our understanding of history and the dissections of power as influencing how illness is expressed in our bodies, in our societies, and in our planet. Rupa said it beautifully, and I don't have a whole lot more to add other than chiming in with the also you know, having the experience of being a product of colonialism and its contradictions. So you know, the, the reason I speak with this particularly posh voice is because my ancestors were moved in various ways from South Asia to Fiji and Kenya, both British territories. And then you know, my, my folks met in Britain and now I'm here. And the experience of being British Asian is one that is that sits at the sort of interstices of all these contradictions. I mean, I, I remember when the film Gandhi came out uh, and it was very odd to see someone who looked a little bit like the rest of us on screen for the first time and feeling very conflicted about first the sort of odd representations of what was happening on the screen and realizing that one had never seen that before and realizing that, that there was still quite a lot of racism uh, and hostility towards people who look like us, which I experienced every day when we worked in our family's convenience store. So that, that experience of being both colonizer and settler and colonized is something that we're, you know, I mean, it's something I've, I've lived with for a while. It's, it's really working on this project with Rupa that it's been uh, just a whole lot clearer how my work around food systems and you know resistance and peasant movements has has really been a sort of education in technologies of decolonization and also of healing the body but without a language to describe that it was it was hard to know that's what i was thinking and experiencing and writing about until rupert and i got to collaborate on this book mm. 
What I find is that within the green movement or within the healthcare industry, when people talk about the outcomes that we want, it's not too controversial. You know, of course, people want healthy and biodiverse lands, nutritious foods, good personal health and public health. But when we start talking about what it'll take and the how, it definitely can become pretty divisive. And I think that's because people have fundamentally different depths of understanding of how our problems came to be. And like we said, part of what has shaped your decolonial lens is looking deep into history to see how colonialism and capitalism have transformed our collective relationships with one another, with ourselves, and with our planet. So can you take us back to give us some historical context as to how these dominant forces have transformed our relationships and therefore our abilities to recognize ourselves as a part of Earth and to live as a part of Earth? That's such a great question. And we can look right now at the air quality in the Bay today is pretty hazy from the wildfires that are raging throughout California because of the of several things, but including the mismanagement of the land and the water here that has happened since you know the last few hundred years since this land has been colonized. So since before colonialism, the people who lived here in what we now call California for tens of thousands of years managed a complex, vibrant, healthy, biodiverse ecosystem and tended that ecosystem so that all of the living entities that were here were being, I guess, tended. That's the word. There were relationships with all of those entities, whether they were the grizzly bear or the wolves or the coyotes or the beaver or the salmon or the water. And when this area was conquered and the genocide happened in California, not only were the people removed forcibly from their lands and killed, you know, there was a policy of the state of California to offer bounty on Native Americans' heads to clear the land for the gold rush and for the agriculture and all the settlement of these lands. Not only were the people gone, but their knowledge of how to be in the land here was suppressed. People were afraid to be indigenous because they would be murdered. And so a lot of that knowledge went underground. The songs were forgotten. The languages were forgotten. And what we see now in California is that we have this huge fuel burden. And and with the years and decades of fire suppression, we're having these massive fires. Um, we have trees that you know have never grown to the sizes that they are or shrubs that have never been cleared. And I'm working on a project in Ramatushaloni territory on a farm that we're working to rematriate to the Ramatushaloni people and walking through the land with traditional ecological knowledge keeper, Sage La Pena, who's uh, Nabdapam Wintu, a Pomo elder. And she'll look at the, the woodland corridor through this farm. There's about a half acre of creek that has been overrun with this invasive ivy and the fish life is dwindled and all the farmers around there are sequestering millions of gallons of water while the creek is running dry right now. And she just looks at the land and sees how deeply mismanaged it is. There, there hasn't been fire there in a long time. Those places need the medicine, the purifying medicine of fire. And so this isn't simply that, you know, indigenous people just know better, which they do in terms of tending that biodiversity. It's that their their knowledge and their sciences have been disrespected and disregarded by a white supremacist Eurocentric perspective. And that white supremacist Eurocentric perspective is not going to fix the problems that we're in. And we, we name that as the colonial cosmology, the colonial capitalist cosmology. That is not going to reattach 
people to their relationships to one another and to the web of life around them. It is specifically the colonial capitalist cosmology that sundered those relationships in order to exploit and extract from the living world around us, whether it was beavers for beaver hats or salmon for canning salmon or water or gold or fossil fuels. Um, So this whole mentality is one that seeks just very short-minded gains and to hell with the rest. And what we're living with right now is the outcome of several centuries of that, which is fire. And then you see how it's compounded with the COVID and the intersection between the wildfires and COVID and how those two things make each other worse. And then you look at the rates uh, rising as children are being asked to go back to school. So millions of unvaccinated children are now heading to school with masks and ventilations and, you know, hope that they won't get sick when this virus is behaving in ways that we haven't seen yet. And we don't know because of Modi's inability to manage his, his role properly as an authoritarian you know, ruler in India when this virus was spreading rampantly and many of our family members died. So, you know, these things intersect and it's important to really look at the root cause of what ideology, what mindset is it that will will rip us apart from our relationship to those things that bring us health and wellness and what cosmologies will guide us back to that. Because all of us, every human on this earth comes from a lineage that was once earth-based that was once in critical relationships with all the things that supported their wellness and and health. When we talk about traditional ecological knowledge, this is something that definitely, it's a form of knowledge and a mode of healing that definitely has been marginalized. And it didn't used to be this way. So traditionally, various forms of healing were widely accepted and practiced and valued. But it's not so much the case today within the dominant culture that really places a higher value and privileges certain ways of thinking and knowing over the others. And Raj, I believe it was you that had said that philanthropy oiled the engine of colonization and really furthered this disconnection. So how exactly did philanthropy, which is often seen as a balancing force of good in this extractive system, how did it shape the field of modern medicine and education? And also what is deemed acceptable modes of healing and what is even considered medicine today? In, in our book, in Inflamed, we talk about how the Carnegie Foundation bankrolled an investigation into establishing basic criteria for modern medical schools in the United States. And the guy who did that was a guy called Abraham Flexner. And the Flexner report ended up finding that the majority of black medical schools were not up to snuff, but quite a few white medical schools were. And in the process, there was the exclusion of a range of forms of healing. But behind that is the longer history of white supremacy and benevolence. Uh, And I think that this is part of what what Rupert was talking about a little earlier on, where the, the idea of colonialism needs at some level basic justification because... And, and certainly the, you know, the Spanish, when they came to the Western Hemisphere, needed some sort of moral license in order to be able to do the, you know, the, the straightforwardly horrid things that they did to indigenous people. And the, the license was provided by the Pope. The idea was that the 
people of the, the Western Hemisphere hadn't yet heard of Christ, and they were going to be given the opportunity to, uh, opportunity to learn about Christ on their days off from being enslaved or effectively enslaved while producing silver for transfer over back to Europe. But that idea that Western civilization is doing it for your own good is the sort of guiding thread behind modern philanthropy. There's no accountability there. If you look at how the Gates Foundation comports itself or the Rockefeller Foundation comports itself or the Carnegie Foundation comports itself, there's no moment of accountability for sins past. There's no redress for people who suffer at the hands of these foundations spending priorities. So for example, when a range of American foundations sponsor the Green Revolution in India, what happens is the disenfranchisement of the poorest people who are kicked off their land so that middle peasants are able to access the largesse of American industrial chemistry and get funding for bore wells that, that uh, irrigate their land. And now, of course, those areas of India that, that suffered the Green Revolution are areas with uh, incredibly high rates of farmer suicide and social despair. And you know, at the time, these American foundations were also in the business of supporting the Gandhi family, and this is Indira Gandhi and the Nehru Gandhi line. Their work in forced sterilizations, for example, was to some extent bankrolled by US foundations. Foundations. And of course, there's no consequence for US foundations for that. They're, they're, you know, many of these foundations are still around and still giving money to be able to save the world. So this idea of philanthropy is, and it's important to recognize this, a, a way of entrenching patriarchy. And th there isn't really a line to, to draw between patriarchy and philanthropy in that sense. And in the same way, when you know, philanthropy says, well, medicine's over here and food's over here, it's rehearsing and recapitulating the ideas that in, in other civilizations seem absurd. You know, in, most other civilizations don't see a line between food and medicine. In fact, they're coextensive. But when you have a professionalizing capitalist medical hierarchy in which the pharmaceutical industry is very keen on producing certain kinds of profit and in which certain kinds of knowledge need to be deprecated, even if they're stolen from in the process of manufacturing pharmaceutical products, then you have this line between food and medicine and people who are outside the licensed uh, and sort of usually patented and profitable lines of pharmaceutical production are witch doctors or they're conducting voodoo or, and, you know, and th these terms are used derisively as opposed to recognizing the healing that, that these communities are doing. But then you have a very sort of concentrated and, as Rupert said, uh, embedded in white supremacy form of discrimination between what counts as medicine and healing and what doesn't. Something you mention in the book is that disease is thought to be located within the body when in actual fact it's located outside the body. I think this just sums up so much of what's being said here so eloquently, but I wonder if you can speak more to this and perhaps how medical education has set the entire healthcare system up to take on this approach of decontextualizing health and illness from the greater systems that they are inevitable responses to. The history of medical understanding of physiology is so interesting to me to look at Western medicine and see how they kind of figured things out about how, how we're getting sick. And there was a real revolution in medicine in the 1800s when a French physiologist, Broussailles, identified the cause of inflammation as being a 
phenomenon in the body. So when there was irritation of an organ or a place in the body that generated an inflammatory response, which could often lead to fever. And that, that turned into various descriptions of itises, whether it's myocarditis for an inflammation in the cardiac tissue that we're seeing with COVID, or whether it's colitis, inflammation of your colon or neuritis, inflammation of your nerves. And so this was, you know, before this time, Fevers were often described with these really colorful metaphors or words and descriptions that kind of described the way someone looked more than where the fever was originating from in the body and what it was caused by. And so when this happened, we understood that disease was coming from somewhere within the body. It wasn't from some ambiguous miasma um, per se. It was from this physiological, pathological experience in the body. And what we do in our book is that we see that inflammation is actually the body's response to damage and to the threat of damage. And it's the immune response working in very close coordination with all these other systems. So even the separation of the body into these anatomical systems is a misunderstanding of how we are an integrated whole. Mm-hmm. And that our neuro um, neurologic system and our endocrine system and our bodies and our even our mind exists outside of our brain. And so we say, as along the lines of Rudolf Virchow, who was saying this back in the 1800s, 1840s, 1848, when he was on the barricades fighting against the rise of colonial capitalism within Europe and the enclosure of the commons and the degradation of work conditions uh, and the inability for working class people to determine their own health and their own fate. He identified that it wasn't the organism such as the bacteria that causes typhus that leads to an um, epidemic. It is the body's reaction to typhus. It is the body's reaction to that bacteria that creates these epidemics. And that is exactly what we see as well, that it's not COVID, the um, SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes the disease. It is the body's reaction to that virus that causes the disease. And those people who are most socially oppressed and who have a additive impact of toxic exposures in their lives, whether those toxic exposures are environmental toxins, wildfire smoke, lack of good drinking water, police violence, colonial terror ongoing through one's tribal lands, whether they are debt, um, which all of us in the United States carry, these things create damage in the body. And it's creating it in a way where the immune system is responding with inflammation. Now, usually when there's damage in the body and the inflammatory response is activated, it pushes the body back into what we call homeostasis, which is an optimal functioning condition of the body. However, when that damage is ongoing, the body doesn't have a chance to regain that balance. And so it continues, the inflammatory response continues. And what we get is this chronic smoldering systemic inflammation. And all the diseases of modern industrialized people that we see, all the main killers are diseases where inflammation is playing a major role. So it really is an interesting opportunity to look at communities who are living with their critical relationships to the web of life still intact. So they're not living under a colonial capitalist cosmology those communities do not have the rates of inflammatory disease that we suffer from. 
And this really struck me when I was called to Standing Rock to do a medic response for, as you know, the the pipeline protest was encountering increasing violence from the state and hired mercenaries. And the indigenous California native folks called me out there and I met with Lakota health leaders and elders. And one of them, I'll, I'll never forget, Candace Ducheneau said to me, you know, we never had these diseases before the colonizers came. And, you know, the, the Western mind of mind said, oh, they just didn't know how to diagnose diabetes and they just didn't know how to diagnose cardiovascular disease and cancer. But of course they have those diseases. But in fact, you can look at modern indigenous societies that are living with their culture intact today, and they actually don't have these same rates of disease. Of diseases. Modern colonized indigenous communities whose critical relationships to their languages, to their customs, to their food ways and medicine ways have devastating levels of these inflammatory diseases. And it's been fascinating to see even something as, you know, we don't think of as a biological mediator, but language. Those cultures that are living in indigenous cultures that have continuation of their cultural knowledge through language are protected against diabetes. And diabetes, we know, is an inflammatory disease. So when you see that, it, it just speaks to something way more complex happening in the body than simply their you know, beta islet cells just aren't working as well as they used to, or maybe their fat cells are preventing their insulin from being as, their cells from being as sensitive to insulin as they need to be. This suggests there is a very complex interaction between the mind, the knowing, the cosmology, the understanding of who one is in the world and the relationships between these things and health. And so so that is what we are really saying is that we cannot expect for health to improve on a population or even an individual level until we start contending with these structures that are making us sick. And this latest IPCC report around climate change, I mean, that's just an obvious example. It's like we actually cannot be healthy when our world is on fire. It's impossible. And so for us to get at the possibility of health, we need to start working collectively and following those people who have known for thousands of years how to do this right. And so I don't think we're going to get out of you know climate change or, or I don't think we're going to have the solutions we need by following the Sierra Club, for example. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to find it through organizing and working with peasant farming movements, practicing agroecology, indigenous people who've been fighting this colonial cosmology for 600 years. Yeah. Whenever I critique this form of advancement or progress or development as it is understood by the dominant culture, there are always some people that will be like, well, at least be grateful for modern medicine because we're able to treat and cure a lot of these diseases that we never were able to before. But Basically, modern Western civilization has brought forth a lot of the chronic or at least the rise in chronic inflammatory diseases. So it's sort of trying to address the problems that it at the same time helped to aggravate. Not to say that modern medicine hasn't brought any value at all, but just to sort of contextualize it so we see this all better um, and more clearly. And it's interesting because oftentimes chronic illnesses are framed as problems of poor lifestyle choices, or the climate crisis is often framed as issues of uh, carbon 
imbalance or carbon emissions that also get pinpointed on people's individual lifestyles. And again, it's not that those things aren't a factor within this equation, but I think there's tremendous value in shifting our perspectives to seeing inflammatory responses of the human body and inflammatory responses of the earth's body as symptoms and responses that are trying to tell us something, that are calling upon us to collectively transform our relationships and ways of living and being. I guess what baffles me is that when we maintain a decontextualized understanding of the problem, it really creates room for commercialized surface level solutions to take hold. So when people think that carbon is the problem, things like carbon capture technologies get propped up. Or when people think that an unhealthy microbiome is the problem rather than a symptom of greater systems of ailment, people turn to, you know, purchasing probiotics. And these sorts of incrementalist solutions actually are profitable for the companies that make them, who will then have larger and larger marketing budgets to indoctrinate people into thinking of them as solutions. But at the same time, I wonder if they might just be distractions that prevent us from seeing the deep transformations that all of these symptoms collectively are calling for. Yes. And I just want to say thank you for that, because I think that there's so much power and, and beauty of Western medicine and Western science. So I, we're not, you know, going to throw those under the bus, but we do recognize that the decontextualization of these institutions is part of their package as they were part of the colonizing enterprise here in these lands. So it's no surprise that those lines of power and those dynamics are hidden and need to be brought to the surface because while Western medicine um, has served some people really well, it hasn't served many others of us equally well. And I think that that is part of the work of decolonizing medicine is understanding how medicine has been a part of the colonial project and what detriment that, how that kind of impedes our ability to actually secure health for people. And it could be as much as, you know, as, as significant as understanding the cultural and historical context of the people that you're seeing and treating and also their relationship to the medical structures and the structures of science. And I think COVID has provided another powerful opportunity. And yes, I think that focusing on the individual as, oh, you, you know, you poor person, you just, you know, eat badly. And therefore, why can't you get it together and eat better? It's a cruel way of, of positioning or, or framing the health problem, because the health problem is in the food system that makes it impossible for that person to make a good food choice. The health problem is in the manufactured crisis of poverty and homelessness in a capitalist society that actually requires our desperation to force workers back into the workplace in order to, you know, work for crappy wages so that Jeff Bezos can take his joyride on this, you know, spaceship. And so I think that our priorities in our society have been really revealed to us through COVID in an, in a glaring way. So it's a good time to sit together and think what is going to secure our health for the most people? What is going to secure our well-being? And these things are systemic, just as we are systems within systems. Our microbiome is not something you can get in a pill. It's a living portrait of our healthy relationships to the world around us. And so anyone selling you a pill is not 
getting at the root problem of why the microbiota of the U.S. people in urban environments is so denuded. It's not denuded because they're not taking the right pill. And so that is our call, is to really inspire people to demand their right to be healthy. And Camille, I mean, when you talk about folks saying, well, you know, it's it's all well and good to talk about healing systems within systems, but, you know, modern medicine has brought us good dental care, like try going to the dentist in the 12th century and see how much fun you have. Modern medicine is terrific. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it, it's important to recognize first that, yes, colonial capitalism has brought us lidocaine, but it's also brought about the extinction of the planet. And I think that that's not a great trade. And the, in fact, the, the widespread availability of anesthetic is something that, that is, I mean, we, we touch on in Inflamed. We, we talk about the history of the ways that modern medicine experimented on, particularly on black women in the United States, and did so without anesthetic because under this white supremacist model, their, their pain and suffering was deemed minor and less than that of white women. And of course, that's something that still persists today. You know, we, we talk in the book about how in, in the United States in 2016, there were 58% of white people believed that black people's skin was thicker than white people, including 40% of first year medical students. And even after four years of medical school, 20% of medical, white medical students still thought that black people's skin was thicker. You know, the sort of the corollary there around pain and pain management is borne out by statistics that, that show amply that black babies born under the care of black physicians are far more likely to live than uh, those born under the care of white physicians. So all of this is, is to point out that, yes, you, you know, what, what one can celebrate certain elements of, of modern medicine. But the thing that, again, Rupa said exactly right, that we're excited about is that when science works best, it works for everyone. And the way to make sure it works for everyone is to make sure that everyone is recognized as a peer reviewer of science. And part of the, the sort of tropes of modern science, and we see it today, not just in the climate change report, but in the UN Food Systems Summit that's happening right now, there is a policing of who it's, whose knowledge and whose wisdom counts and who gets to be a peer reviewer in science. And right now, there's quite a lot of emphasis in recognizing that the people who make carbon sequestration technologies are scientists, but the people who plant trees aren't. And the people who are guardians of biodiversity are just following traditional ways and hunting and gathering, when in fact, what appear to be hunting and gathering systems are in fact incredibly sophisticated, well-managed sort of systems of biodiversity. So recognizing that there is a vast amount of science that just hasn't been turned into profit and therefore doesn't count as science is part of the way that, that uh, you know modern capitalist uh, colonial science has operated. And if we are to turn to a better future. This isn't about turning back the clock. We can't. The, the world that many of these technologies were invented in is gone. We are headed towards a, a hotter world and the choice is how hot and how much change are we prepared to make. That, that world is gone, but the systems of knowledge and, and exchange that we need to be able to live in harmony with the, the, the planet doesn't involve throwing out science. In fact, it depends on it. But what it does involve throwing out is colonialism and capitalism.
Also through the process of colonialism, there was really a split and severance of culture, spirit, and nature. And that was one of the relational changes that took place. And so inspired by your book, it's been fascinating for me to think about how different foods hyped up as quote-unquote superfoods for certain benefits have completely been extracted and decontextualized from the cultural traditions and practices that they come from. I know, Ruba, you've brought up the example of salmon before. Could you speak more to this and how many of these anti-inflammatory foods have actually become even inflammatory due to the ways that they've been extracted and commodified and separated from their greater context? This is such a big, this is such a big, yeah, issue. So for the salmon, I really, we we had the great pleasure of speaking with Chief Colleen Sisk, who is the chief of the Winnemum-Wintu and a protector of the salmon. And I just loved, I, I love her and all the work that she's doing. Every year she does a run for salmon to connect the different territories that are part of the salmon run. She lives up by Mount Shasta, which is their territory. And salmon is one of the life's greatest gifts of you know wild salmon of an anti-inflammatory food. So when we eat salmon, it lowers levels of systemic inflammation. Um, it has all sorts of benefits for the brain, for the cardiovascular system, for the endocrine system. And when salmon were overfished on the Atlantic side, fished to extinction, they came over to California to, or newly colonized California to talk with the Winnemum Wintu and say, well, how does this Pacific salmon work? And like, how do we, you know, farm salmon? And the Winnemum Wintu shared with these scientists, the practices that they knew over observing the salmon, that the salmon came up and would spawn in the places where they were born and that their corpses would then nourish, they would die after they spawn. And then their corpses would nourish all the animals around them, including the babies when they would be um, hatched and, and the smelt when they were young. And the scientists didn't really believe like, oh no, these salmon don't die because that's not what happens to the Atlantic salmon. So they thought, of course, the indigenous people were crazy until they saw it and they said, oh, okay, well they did. And then they you know, learned about this spawning and this cycle and then they left with that knowledge to develop their extremely violent practices that we see now in modern hatcheries. And what Chief Colleen would say is that, you know, they came, they took that knowledge, but they didn't learn the songs and they didn't learn how we light the fires all the way up the river so that the salmon knew where to go. And they didn't know the dances. And so they didn't actually see the whole architecture of culture of relationship to the salmon. It wasn't simply just about extracting them or taking from the salmon. It was also about giving and assisting and relating to them as they came up on this magnificent journey from the ocean all the way up to the base of Mount Shasta. And so, yeah. And so now we look at modern salmon and farm salmon, and there have been some documentation that farm salmon is actually, some of them are pro-inflammatory when you eat it, um, actually cause a rise in pro-inflammatory markers and markers that uh, markers of inflammation. We also see in farmed salmon um, rise in inflammation themselves. So the close quarters and unhealthy dynamics of farming salmon causes a rise in salmon viruses that cause inflammation of their heart muscle and their their skeletal muscle. Um, so it's just, you know, as when we thought about inflammation as a as an idea, it was just shocking to see how it was being recreated, not just in us, 
but in the animals. So looking at the way that we treat animals in farming, the way we breed animals, the violence with which animals are treated in industrial farming practices, and you'll find inflammation throughout those animals. Mm. Because it really is the architecture of domination, of non-respect, of non-relationship, of treating some person as if they were a thing that creates a toxic exposure for that person, whether that person is a salmon or whether that person is a black person in the United States or whether that person is a woman in a patriarchal society. So any axis of domination will create this impact. Yeah. So maybe there isn't such a thing as an quote-unquote anti-inflammatory food or drug or supplement. Maybe all there is is really an anti-inflammatory culture and exactly. system. Exactly. And that's what we're calling, you know, that's the that's the cosmology that will get us out of this mess. And there are people living on planet Earth who are doing it very well. And this is not something we learn as we are raised in this this society. And yeah. so to look for the solutions in a mindset of this society is is not going to lead us very far. In terms of looking to our path forward, you've both noted that historically the most transformative movements have not been funded by charities or philanthropies, but they came about in grassroots manners through community building and community organizing. So I guess my question is, given that our current economic disparity continues to widen and the injustice of everything, including land ownership, continues to grow, what sorts of wealth do you think can be created through mutualism and community building from the bottom up without waiting on those in power to give up their monetary wealth? And what sorts of changes still require a sort of economic wealth from the top being decentralized and redistributed? Hmm. I mean, it's certainly the case that when you dollarize something and think of that as wealth, then the modern industrial food system is in the business of wealth destruction and common wealth destruction at that. There was a, a report out recently where it emerged that in 2019, Americans spent $1.1 trillion on food, but the food system caused $2.2 trillion worth of damage. And so I mean, if, if we're waiting on capitalism to transfer wealth, you're waiting for the wrong thing. Capitalism isn't in the business of appropriating wealth. And it seemed, I mean, you know, the history points out that the only way that that stops is through organizing. But that you can't, and you, rather you shouldn't put a dollar value on the kinds of things that communities are in the process of building right now in order to survive. The, the links of care, uh, the, the relationships of nurturing and tenderness and love that exist between all kinds of persons you know, that we were talking about earlier on, whether, whether those persons are human or more than human. And, and I think it's important to, to bring this word commons back into the discussion, because there is a lot of commons wealth that can and is already being created by movements around the world. Uh, th these are sadly the, the kinds of things that neoliberalism takes for granted. So, you know, when there is an austerity program, the neoliberal architects of those 
austerity programs will just say, yes, look, fine, the, the, the poor will manage to figure it out because, you know, they've got such great social connections that people are going to step in and the churches will or the food banks will take care of people or this, that and the other. But it, it remains the case that there are bonds of reciprocity and care that exist not just within communities, but as COVID has demonstrated, between rural and urban communities. We're seeing, for example, throughout Latin America, the kinds of transfer of food and of care and of resources from communities that have been relatively unscathed by unscathed by COVID towards communities that are hungry and are suffering a great deal by the precarity in which they exist under this particular pandemic. So there are these, these relationships that move away from the market uh, and move towards the commons that are incredibly rich and rich not in a dollar way, but in fact, you know, the, the, our impulse to turn everything into a dollar value is a sign uh, that we have been colonized. They are rich in other ways, in multidimensional ways that cannot and should not be collapsed into a dollar when we think about wealth. But those kinds of relationships are relationships that allow joy, that allow resilience, not in the, uh, you know, the, the, in the sort of crappy way of just being able to survive capitalism, but resilience in a way that allows human flourishing. And th those kinds of relationships, I think, are the ones that we've been lucky enough to be able to report a little bit on in, in Flames, but also to, to be able to participate in, and in particular through work like the Deep Medicine Circle, of which Rupa is an executive director. And finally, through the lens of deep medicine, you say that justice is the medicine. I really love that. And of course, the big words that people often use in conjunction with understanding our path to justice are things like dismantling capitalism, decolonization, or also abolition. And a lot of this is seemingly framed as a deletion of systems that aren't working, but there actually is so much beauty and love at the heart of this work because it's actually about building systems and politics of care and reciprocity that can sort of render those extractive and punitive systems obsolete. So as we learn to move away from individualistic understandings of what we need to do, what are your calls to action or further inquiry for our listeners so that we can collectively play our roles in rebuilding this reality? There's so many levels in which people can act right now. And I think, you know, whether it's through offering support to our frontline warriors on line three, through getting in the face of local and state and federal government to shut down the Dakota Access Pipeline, I think for myself, I, I tend to fall in step with the invitation and leadership of the indigenous folks that I'm around and who I'm working with. So finding people, entering relationships with people you might not know and asking, how can I help? And learning to listen. I think that's a big thing for those of us who are settlers here on stolen land, um, learning to just be humble and listen and not have the solutions, but be prepared to learn. And then just to take the, the marching orders and offer your privileges and offer your skills. We have tremendous amount of skill together. We have tremendous potential to build other alternatives. And you're absolutely right. This isn't about negating so much as it is about creating a more beautiful world that is centered in care. And through the creation of that world, and it needs all of us, all hands on deck, through general strikes, through saying we're no longer participating in that system, we're withholding our labor, we're withholding our children. These processes of saying no to something allow us to say yes to other things. And there is 
there are active movements in every corner of the globe of people who are building these alternatives right now. So for folks who don't know about it, I'd say start learning about what's going on in your local environment. If you live in colonized, settled territories, start working with the native communities and asking, what can I do? How can I help? And then take your orders from there. Well, we are nearing the end of our time together, but again, the book we've been discussing here is Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. I highly recommend picking up a copy from an independent bookstore or a local bookstore to check it out. And Rupa and Raj can be found on Twitter at drrupamaria and at underscroll Raj Patel. For now, Raj, what final words of wisdom would you like to leave us off with? In the book, we talk about the care revolution. And I think in the writing of this book and in the work that I've been inspired by Rupa in following and the work that I'm doing with uh, peasant movements around the world, I I think what's exciting about this moment is that there are so many new ways that we might learn to care. There are so many beings with which, uh, with whom, we can and should be caring. Uh, and that's the, the sort of invitation of this moment, that the green dream is something that has to be dreamed together with so many more people than we've been allowed to have in our cosmology. And that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a dream worth cherishing and worth sharing. And Rupa, please take us home. Oh, I just think it's a beautiful moment to remain optimistic I have a deep optimism for the creative capacity of people to move to healing, to move to a healing um, perspective and dynamic. And I would say it's a great time to embrace humility because there's so much we don't know in the face of all the challenges that are right ahead and to really connect Just start building those relationships with your foods, with your plants, with your soils, with your friends and community, and then extending beyond to the people you don't yet know and and start working to build that solidarity so we we can start dismantling those things that are hurting the earth and hurting so many people. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To support the show starting from just $2 or to make a larger tax-deductible donation, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. Without a media network or marketing agency behind us, we also rely entirely on word of mouth so that our extensive archive of conversations can reach and inspire more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with friends or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is Around the World by Wig Wham, offered to us by Indigenous Cloud. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care and I'll catch you soon in the next episode.